My grandfather had the coolest attic I have ever seen. On rainy days, uh, when there weren't things to do outside at his house, he would let me go up there and I would play with all of his stuff. He had so much cool stuff. There was an old raccoon coat, real legit 1920s raccoon coat, and some of his college pennants were up there with it. And uh, there, was a, there was a file cabinet that was full of old stock certificates and, uh, and job information because he had to leave college during the Depression. Uh, his dream was to be an architect. He was in his uh, first year of architecture school when he had to leave and get a job. He stood in line with 500 other people and was chosen as the one person to get a job with Hartford Steam Boiler Insurance Company. He worked for them for 50 years and uh, had all kinds of memorabilia about that. Uh, he had a trunk full of old newspapers and magazines from events that were important in his life, like, uh, like this one. This is the Arkansas Democrat. They were in Little Rock at the time. December 8, 1941, Congress declares war on Japanese after address by President Roosevelt. Isn't that amazing? whole bunch of these, including a Dewey defeats Truman uh, one with some notes on him about how sad he was with that. Anyway, but my favorite thing by far up in the old attic was his old Victrola, um, the old record player. It was made by RCA Victor. It had, uh, it had these huge, heavy 78 RPM records. I spent hours listening to those old records, and the logo on that machine was just wonderful. Uh, the old record player had this picture, uh, his master's voice. It was the dog listening to his master's voice. What a great logo RCA got when they bought out the Victrola company, his master's voice. It shows the fidelity of the recording, and then also it shows the, the, the dog loyally, wisely listening to his master's voice. And I thought back to that attic and the master's voice Victrola as I prepared for our new study uh, that we launched today. Today we begin our study of the great teaching of Jesus that Christians call the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and so I begin our notes today with the headline, His Master's Voice. Um, you got a worship guide when you came in. Open that up. Look on the left-hand side. You'll see that headline, His Master's Voice. These words were very important to Jesus' followers. They kept them carefully stored in their hearts and on paper. The recording that we have in the book of Matthew is of the highest fidelity. It was preserved and passed on to us because this significant teaching contains our master's voice. Please open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew is the first book of your New Testament. Go to chapter 5 and let's read Matthew 5, 1 through 2. When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain <clears throat> and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them saying, stop there. Matthew starts by describing the setting, so we need to understand the setting. The mountain is not a location that we, that we know today. We're not sure where it was, but let me tell you something significant. Matthew often describes this area, the area around Capernaum at the north end of the Sea of Galilee, as mountainous. It's one of his, it's one of his favorite adjectives for that area. He calls it mountainous. So it makes great sense that the mountain is somewhere in this area near Jesus' new adopted hometown of Capernaum. By the way, this triangle, it shows the traditional site of the Mount of Beatitudes, but that's that's merely a guess. We don't really know exactly where it happened, except that it almost certainly happened somewhere up here. And that is significant, that it happened somewhere up there. <clears throat> Back when I used to teach in Israel, I would take all the people I was teaching, all the students, out onto the sea, onto the lake, and I would have them make a 90 degrees with their arms. You guys do it right now. Stick your left arm out like this and your right arm straight ahead like that. I would, have the, I would get the boat to where their left arm was right at Mount Arbel and their right arm straight at Capernaum. And then I would tell them this, 90% of Jesus' known ministry 
90% of his known ministry happened within those 90 degrees you see in your hands right now. This sermon takes place in the heart of Jesus' ministry, and it contains the heart of his message. There's significance in the timing, too. The message comes right after John the baptizer's death. New, new things are unfolding because the Messiah's forerunner has been murdered. Look, look back at the context. Go back to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, let's pick it up in verse 12. <clears throat> verse 12. When he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth, his childhood home, behind and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali along the sea road beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the shadow land of death, light has dawned. The setting and the timing declare this is Messiah Jesus' time and place. This is his time and place to shine. One more thing to note about the setting. Galilee is the center of a, of a zealous revolution that is just getting started, a revolution against Rome. Now, don't make too much of this, but it's at least somewhat significant that this most extensive version we have of Jesus' speech is given in the land of rebels. Jesus' disciple, Simon the Zealot, was obviously of that rebel party. By the way, the rebel stronghold was up here in the cliffs of Arbel. I showed you where Arbel was earlier. There's cliffs going all through it. If, if we ever go back to Israel, you can go with me. And, and um, It's not safe, but it's really fun to climb through all those caves and go up there. I, I recommend it. Now, Jesus is not going to offer a political solution that the Zealots want. Uh, not on this trip, he's not. But the location is telling because what he's about to share is radical. This is a rebellious ethic. This is radically different than any other ethical system in the world. And he starts by going up the mountain. Uh, look at the Greek up here. Uh, Anive is translated, he went on. But is in the Bible is actually more often rendered, rendered beside or next to. Here's why most Western Bibles make it up. Western people tend to think of speaking from a summit downward, right? And by the way, Mussolini built a beautiful church right up there at the top of that hill that's identified with Jesus' sermon. But a Jew in Galilee wouldn't think that way. A Jew would have thought more of speaking upward from the base of the hill down near the water. And the speaker, as we're told in the text, would always be seated, not standing. It's a very different mindset from ours. I know... I know this brings up a great question that you're asking in your mind. In your uh, goofy voice, you're saying, gosh, Mickey, why would a speaker sit down near the water? And that's an excellent question, Goof. Thank you for asking. The reason is water acts as a powerful amplifier of sound. It is many times more effective than air. And, and the various coves around the Sea of Galilee, folks, they are more effective at amplifying sound than the Hollywood Bowl. I want, I want to show you. This is a, a little recording from the Sea of Galilee. I want you to listen carefully. You are up on the mountain, and the student is speaking. This is a student reading one of Jesus' parables right down near the water, many hundred yards away from you. But when the sun came up, land was scorched. They withered, they had no root. Other seeds fell among thorns. Still other seeds fell on good soil. 
I think it's very likely that east means next to in Matthew, and Jesus taught from next to the mountain down near the sea, teaching his disciples, but a whole crowd overheard. Regardless of where he taught, discussing the setting exposes a really serious problem. I hope you caught it. We who think like Westerners probably have inaccurate, preconceived ideas about the Sermon on the Mount. And that's troubling. That's very troubling, especially if we don't even notice our assumptions. Let me give you a parallel. Probably the most famous speech in American history is the Gettysburg Address, right? Uh, raise your hand if you feel somewhat familiar with that speech. Four score and seven years ago, our founding fathers said four. All right. Um, <clears throat> like me, you probably just assumed that Lincoln was the main speaker that day, right? Wrong. He was not. Abraham Lincoln wasn't even, he wasn't, not only was he not the keynote speaker, he wasn't even one of the headliners at the dedication of that cemetery. He was one of the, of the background speakers that day. But you've seen Lincoln all your life, on the penny, everywhere else, right? So surely you can pick him out of a crowd. Tell me, who in this crowd is Abraham Lincoln? These people here in the center, up toward the platform, which one's Abe Lincoln? Yeah, no, it's not. You're, I understand, you say, think it's, but it's not this impressive-looking dude in the stovepipe hat. It's this guy right here, the funny, balding guy that is stooped and tired and leaning forward. But you surely imagine Lincoln's voice correctly, don't you? I mean, I don't know about you, but I cannot get out of my head that he sounds just like Gregory Peck, which is from a film I saw as a child. But you know, contemporary accounts tell us that Lincoln's voice actually was a very high kind of reedy tenor that was actually, we're told, difficult to listen to for any long period of time because it was this high-pitched, squeaky voice. Finally, let me just say this. Do you feel completely confident in the text of the speech? I mean, surely you're confident in that, right? I mean, it's not very many words, one of the shortest great speeches in history. But you may want to step back if you feel really certain. In case you don't know, there are five copies of the Gettysburg Address penned by Lincoln himself, written by him. And they all disagree with each other on important points. And none of them agree with the newspaper accounts that were printed at the time. Now, my point is not to erode your confidence in the Gettysburg Address. It was real. It is indeed monumental. I just want to advise caution about all the surmises that we bring to the table, especially when it comes to a much, much more important speech, the Sermon on the Mount. Over the coming days, as you and I study Jesus' words, I'm going to try to continually immerse us in the historical and linguistic context. Please be ready to strip away the inaccurate layers that may have congealed on our minds over time. I promise you, if we together will do the hard work of stripping away the cultural buildup, we will, we will find ourselves in awe of the beautiful grain of Jesus' teaching. All God's people said, amen. amen. May it be so. In our notes, you'll see the next bit of context regards the audience. Read our text again. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them. The major issue is the antecedent of them. Anybody remember seventh grade English class? Last hour I had all these seventh graders in here. They didn't remember seventh grade English class. Um, <laughs> if you do, you may notice there are two possible meanings for the pronoun them. It could be the crowds or it could be his disciples. How do we decide? 
Well, as our seventh grade English teachers tried to teach us when we were daydreaming about football, the closer noun is almost always the correct answer. By the way, Greek and English are alike in this. Uh, the, the closer noun is almost always the antecedent of a pronoun. Disciples is the closest antecedent to them in verse 2. And by the way, all of our earliest commentaries from the 2nd and 3rd centuries, they all assume and they, they say Jesus is addressing the disciples. As I put it in our notes, the audience is Christ followers. But there have been some people who assume that Jesus is addressing the crowd and not his disciples. And I, and I need to take a moment and tell you that presents really big problems. In response to that statement, you are thinking in your uh, Mickey Mouse voice, oh, Goofy, why would it matter who the audience is? Huh? Great question. Thank you, Mick. You're so fine, you blow my mind. Um, it matters greatly. It matters greatly because the crowd is a multitude, and it appears to have included not only many non-followers of Jesus, the crowd includes many non-believers in Jesus. So if you view the message through the eyes of the crowds, especially the non-believers in the crowd, here's what's going to happen. You're going to end up with a warped gospel of Jesus Christ that's based on human performance. And that's wrong. Here's another audience problem to address. There are some dear friends, dear friends of ours, that limit the application of Jesus' ser sermon to just certain small sects of Jewish Christians. This is only for certain Jewish Christians. Because, let me explain, because kingdom timing is a big deal in Matthew. Matthew cares more about timing than any of the rest of the Gospels. Because kingdom timing is a big deal, some scholars limit the audience to those disciples who were present on the mountain that day. Others say this, this ethical message only concerns certain Messianic Jews during the tribulation period of the kingdom that is to come. That kind of narrowing seems really mistaken to me, and I think it's almost as big a problem as the work salvation that comes from too wide an audience. Think of it like Goldilocks, okay? One bed is too big. It includes non-Christians. The other bed is too small. It excludes many Christians, those who aren't Jews. What we want to do is we want to see Jesus' audience in a way that is just right, Okay? And no one addressed this better than Dr. Ironside. I don't think anyone ever will. hundred years ago, H.A. Ironside nailed this. I like this summary so much, I tried to fit it into your notes. I got part of it in there. Here's the first part of what he said. In the so-called Sermon on the Mount, our Lord was not preaching the gospel. He was setting forth the principles of his kingdom, which should guide the lives of all who profess to be his followers. In other words, this is the law of the kingdom, the observance of which must characterize characterize its loyal subjects as they wait for the day when the king himself will be revealed. For the natural man, and that means the person who's not a believer in Jesus, this sermon is not the way of life, but rather a source of condemnation. For it sets a standard so high, so holy, no unsaved person can by any possibility attain to it. He must look elsewhere in the scriptures for the gospel. And then here's the part of his quote I was able to fit in your notes. So far as the unsaved are concerned, therefore, the teaching given here becomes, indeed, as C.I. Schofield well said, law raised to the nth power. But for the believer, just as the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit, so the principles laid down in this sermon will find their practical exemplification in the lives of all who seek to walk as Christ walked. It is not for us to relegate all this to the Jewish remnant in the last days or disciples before the cross, though fully applicable to both. Listen, listen, here's what he says. We need to remember that though a heavenly people, we have earthly responsibilities. And these are defined for us in this greatest of all sermons having to do with human conduct. Brilliantly said. 
As Dr. Ironside stated, the sermon contains the ethic of the master. This is the encapsulation of our master's voice. And by the way, that's how we put it on the right side of our notes. This is the ethic of the master. Anybody here ever see the movie Interstellar? Did you see Interstellar? Raise your hand if you saw Interstellar. Okay, a lot of you did. It was a big hit back in 2014. Stories built on two premises. Two premises behind Interstellar. Number one, truth matters. Matthew McConaughey, the, uh, the protagonist of the movie, he teaches his daughter to observe, teaches her to observe, to focus on truth. And it's really significant because the way Christopher Nolan sets up the film is, is there, and we're told many times, this is a post-truth society. This, this apocalyptic world they're in is a post-truth society. So, so nobody believes in truth. But McConaughey says, no, no, focus on truth. Observe, study truth. Second premise of the movie, the daughter reaches the illogical but absolutely unescapable conclusion that someone is communicating with her from beyond space and time, okay? Truth matters. Somebody's communicating with her beyond space and time. Got that? Spoiler alert. If you want to see the film and you haven't, close your ears real quickly. No, 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 no. The daughter saves all mankind. Okay, you can drop your ears now. You're fine, okay. She builds on truth that is coming to her beyond time and space. And that is the way... Of salvation. In a somewhat similar fashion, the Sermon on the Mount is the voice of our brother who is speaking to us from beyond space and time. And even though you and I live in a world that pretends to be post-truth, and we do, we need to listen. And to understand this voice, we need to get a handle on the way the speech is assembled, the way it flows. The flow highlights holiness. A key moment in Interstellar, if you saw the movie, is when the girl realizes this voice is communicating to her via Morse code. She gets the code, and then she can figure it out. I think a key moment in our lives can come when we grasp the flow of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Thomas Campbell is one of the great teachers at this church, and he wrote me about the flow this week. Thomas wrote, and he said, Wayne, the Sermon on the Mount is not just a random collection of Proverbs. It has structure that ties it all together, and we need to see that structure. Amen, I agree. So I put it in your notes, the structure of the Sermon on the Mount as I understand it. The introduction shows us it's all about holiness. The introduction has three parts to it. There's the setting that we just read, and then there's the nine Beatitudes that we'll study next time, and then the salt and light metaphors. That's the introduction. Then the thesis of the whole message. This is Jesus' great ethic, his thesis. Greater righteousness is required of Jesus' followers than anyone else in human history. He, he explains this with six antitheses. Uh, he has six contrasts between his ethic and the pharisaical version, the bastardization of Moses' law. And then you have a thesis summary, and the thesis summary is in Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Then we have the body of Jesus' ethic. Uh, he gives three true or false. Uh, here's true religion, here's hypocritical false religion. Then uh, ethical fidelity is shown, how you live uh, in high fidelity to this ethic, according to three really beautiful metaphors. Then you have this life-changing trust discussion, and then a teaching about judgment versus discrimination, how in Scripture, discrimination is always good, not in the sense you think of it in modern, but in, in discerning, in thinking, judgment is always bad. Then a section on persistence, and then the summary of the body of Jesus' ethic is the golden rule, which does not mean the person who has the gold makes the rules. It means that you should do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And then we have the application. There's two possible responses, and he shows this in two roads, two kinds of teachers, two claims, and two houses, and the conclusion of the whole thing is Jesus speaks with authority.
Got it? Now, don't get lost in the Galilee Hills here. There is one big thesis. Jesus' followers are held to the highest ethic, something beyond anything human beings can imagine. And there's only two possible responses to that ethic. Eternal fruitfulness or earthly failure. That's it. Hey, if you trust in Jesus... You have the opportunity to follow him. He will empower you to keep his words and live in a way that bears eternal fruit. Or, it's your choice, you can violate his ethic and you can experience temporal collapse that is coupled with a loss of eternal reward. As we summarize in the notes, the theme is holiness. And God puts holiness in your grasp. Look at Jesus' statement in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Everybody read this with me. Please, let's read it together. For I tell you, and let, I'm sorry, together is an English word. It means that we all speak at the same time. Let's try it. You ready? Everyone together. Matthew 5, 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Walver, uh, Dr. Walver, that used to teach me, points out that, that this holiness... What he's saying here, this is greater even than the Mosaic law. Jesus paid full respect to the Mosaic law, although the Mosaic law as a binding ethic was to end at the cross. Jesus called for a righteousness which would exceed it, exceed it. That's why I said earlier that Jesus calls his followers to an ethic that is higher than anything ever imagined in human history. And that means our holiness can't come from us. It must come from the Lord himself. He alone can provide for us to live the true kingdom ethic. Otherwise, there is no way, unless he provides for us, there is no way we can exceed the high ethic of Moses' law. Not to mention the Pharisees. You, you can pick on the Pharisees all you want, and they deserve it. But they were much holier than any of us. And we are called to have a holiness that exceeds theirs. That explains why Jesus gave this speech so often. Uh, Luke records one of the other recitations of this speech, a, a, uh, a passage that scholars call the Sermon on the Plain. What we are studying is so important that Jesus appears to have given versions of this brilliant speech many times in many different places. And by the way, that is exactly how a first century philosopher or rabbi taught. You got your followers with you, and they followed you around, and you taught this same ethic in different ways. Surely all of Jesus' followers heard forms of this ethical speech many times, and they were expected to listen to it and live by it. So are we. Yet we often don't. Why not? I've thought about this some, and I see four big reasons why we miss the Master's voice. Four big reasons why we miss his voice. First, we think we're sufficiently holy already. Christians don't live by Jesus' call to holiness, by his ethic, because we believe that we have already arrived. Unlike the Apostle Paul, we are complacent in our sanctification. Read with me what Paul said, Philippians chapter 3. You get the underlying text. Not that I have already reached the goal or am already fully mature, but I make every effort to take hold of it. By the way, in Philippians 3, the context, it is holiness, sanctification. Not that I've already taken hold of holiness because... I have also been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Isn't that cool? Think about that. Okay, do you see the point? It, I can't live Jesus' ethic of holiness because of me, but I can because he has taken hold of me. If I believe in Jesus, he has taken hold of me. The fancy term for this is imputed righteousness. Okay, you get to say it on the count of three. One, two, three, imputed righteousness. God has given me holiness and righteousness. Because of that, I can impart that holiness. I can live it out. It's, it's because I've been taken hold of, of Christ Jesus. 
So I press on in growing holiness because he has justified me. Brothers, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Amen. Paul did not think himself done with sanctification growth. They're talking about the apostle Paul. And yet we often do. I can prove it to you. I'd like you to take a little 12-question quiz. I drew each of these questions directly from Matthew 5 through 7. I want you to take a piece of paper, take your notes and take a pen and just write true and false in the margin. 12 little questions for you. Question number one, I faithfully follow Jesus every day. No, don't, well, on a sliding scale, just true or false, okay? It's binary question. True or false, I consistently hunger for righteousness. I ache to be more holy. True or false? True or false? I am gentle, merciful, and always strive for unity. Always strive for unity. True or false? I rejoice when I'm shunned for what Jesus said would happen. When I'm shunned for being a Jesus follower, I rejoice over that. True or false? When people see my life, they praise God. People see my life. They praise God. True or false? There is no legalism in my life. None. Legalism means trying to be justified or try, by my own effort or, or by keeping rules. Legalism means trying to make God love me more, uh, which is absurd, I know, but we do it. Humans love. There's a way which seems right to people, and it leads to death. There's, there's none of that in my life. True or false? There's no licentiousness in my life. In general, human thought works like this. It, it, human thought works between a, a combination of, uh, or a balance between, a horrible imbalance between, legalism and licentiousness. Licentiousness means loose living. Sometimes you have licentious legalism. That's really fun. And uh, so loose living, there's none of that in my life. True or false? True or false? I am continually true to scriptural ethics. I never let worry take any root in my mind. Not at all. No hint of worry in me ever. True or false? I understand and practice the difference. We mentioned this earlier. It's a big part of the Sermon on the Mount. Between judgment, bad, and discernment, which, which is good. I can discriminate between good and bad, but I don't, I don't judge in a negative. Is that you? True or False. I am persistent and consistent in my pursuit of holiness. I am persistent and consistent in my pursuit of holiness. Last one, true or false? Every aspect of my life is established on Jesus' words. True or false? Now, if you had to answer false to any question in that inventory, raise your hand. Nah, you're lying. Okay. Oh, there you go. Okay, good. Every false answer, and, and there were probably some on which we said true, but every false answer shows an area of my life where I am missing the master's voice. 2,000 years after it was given, you and I need this sermon. We need to faithfully sit and listen to this recording of Jesus' life-changing ethic. And by the way, that's the premise for our series. Why? Why are we studying this? Here's the premise. The one who chooses to follow Jesus needs to build rightly, especially within the redeemed community. 
This is important for each of us that we might persevere in the world. And it's also critical for others who need our light and saltiness. Thankfully, Jesus shows us exactly how to live in his Sermon on the Mount. Are you ready to live differently this year? Are you ready to build to last? Then you and I must understand and rectify the things that make us miss the master's voice. And the reason, number one, we miss his voice is we think we have already arrived. Reason number two is we try liberation without the liberator. Here's what I mean by that. It is increasingly popular in these days to try and follow a a theology of freedom or or a spirituality of freedom without following Jesus. When this occurs, the the cross of Jesus is reduced to mere jewelry. Liberty tends to be reduced to just socioeconomic status. It's divorced from the biblical call to follow Jesus. And by the way, speaking of following Jesus, it's reduced to a list of legalistic rules. Listen, you try and get liberation in your life, freedom in your life, without the real liberator Jesus, and all you are going to achieve is human thought. You're going to achieve some version of libertinism, licentiousness, or legalism. That's it. In other words, supposed freedom without the high ethic of Jesus always devolves, always devolves into license and or self-righteousness. Folks, this has become particularly acute in our age because of the rise of Marxist thinking in lots of Christians. Listen to Craig Blomberg. He is by no means some arch-conservative But Craig notices the danger. He says this, it is impossible to separate Jesus' ethic from allegiance to his person, something that Marx and Gandhi both tried and failed at doing. The ethic is tied to the person of Jesus. Without the person, the ethic is hollow. Jesus is real, and we only find freedom in following him, the authentic, living God-man. Third reason we don't heed the master's voice is, um, to borrow a phrase from Winston Churchill, we have become sugar candy people. We've become sugar candy people. Let me explain. Jesus' way brings holiness to daily life. It brings joy, it brings health, but it comes at a cost. Even though God's Spirit inspires us, even though He provides for our sanctification, He set it up where the process of sanctification still involves great human effort. We have to daily die to selves, says Scripture. We've got to become living sacrifices. We have to pick up our crosses every day and follow the Lord. Now, the hard work is not in the burden. Jesus' yoke is light. The hard work is in submission to Jesus instead of self And we've got to be tough enough to press on, to keep doing that every day, to never quit, even in the face of persecution, even when we want to hide our light under little safe baskets that we think are safe. Folks, this ethic, this hard, adventurous ethic has shaped lives for centuries. It has produced something that we used to call Western civilization, but it is fading. Christians today are very quick to drop our crosses. And as Christians have lost zeal for the hard, wonderful work of building to last following Jesus, it's not just churches that have suffered. The cultures around us are losing the work ethic that was founded on following Jesus. Look at the world around you. We are losing the toughness and the rugged spirit of adventure that Jesus intended for our sojourn of life on this fallen earth. This is an ethic that even people who didn't know Jesus just adopted because Christians so influenced the world. Alan Greenspan points this out in his masterful book, Capitalism in America. Capitalism, I recommend it. I really enjoyed the book. Listen to uh, the former Fed chairman on this. 
the United States is losing the rugged pioneering spirit that once defined it. In 1850, Herman Melville, what did Herman Melville write? Come on. Bartleby the Scrivener, very good. Um, he, uh, <clears throat> he, by the way, is a brother of yours in Jesus Christ. Herman Melville was a believer. Merrillville boasted in 1850, we are the pioneers of the world, the advanced guard sent on through the wilderness of untried things to break a new path in the new world. Today, many of the descendants of those pioneers are too terrified of tripping to set foot on any new path. The problem starts with school. In 2013, a school district in Maryland, just to choose one from many, banned, among other things, pushing children on swings, bringing homemade food into school, and distributing birthday invitations on school grounds. It continues in college where professors have provided their charges with safe spaces and trigger warnings. It extends to every aspect of daily life. McDonald's prints warning signs on its cup of coffee pointing out this liquid may be hot. I think my favorite part of that is the maybe. (laughs) Winston Churchill once said to his fellow countrymen, We have not journeyed across the centuries, across the oceans, across the mountains, across the prairies, because we are made of sugar candy. Today, says Greenspan, thanks to a malign combination of litigation, regulation, and pedagogical fashion, sugar candy people are everywhere. Close quote. And not just outside this building. Oh, my dear sugar candy friends, We have met the enemy, and he is we. Cloistered in our supposedly safe spaces, modern people can't hear the master call us, and he calls us out to a life of empowered, hard adventure. But we're too fragile, or so we think. We think we're holy enough. This is why we don't listen to the master's voice. We think we're holy enough. We want liberty without the liberator. We are sugar candy people. We are sugar candy people. And number four, we bought the lie that all ethics are equal. Actually, this fourth one wasn't fully developed by me. Um, Matt Lance, Pastor Matt Lance, who's going to preach here later in this series, he reminded me of this problem. He and I were conversing about this, and Matt wrote me an excellent note. He said, Wayne, we struggle to follow Jesus because we too easily accept the worldly lie that Jesus has no corner on the market of truth. In fact, we accept all morality as valid, which is, by the way, You ever think about how insipid that is? Amorality is valid. Anybody ever tells you, oh, there's no morality. It's just anything. It's whatever's right for you. Steal their purse. Right there. You will make a moralist in a second. Hey, that's mine. Wait, no, amorality. For me, it's better to take your... I've used it many times. Give it back. But anyway, uh, he says... We accept amorality as valid and trade discernment for the mantra of, well, I can't judge someone else's life. Many environments strongly discourage people from even considering Jesus' ethic. The result is we don't hear Jesus. His voice is drowned out by our self-applause over our purportedly open minds. Uh, Dallas Willard was the late great professor emeritus at USC. He hit the nail on the head. This is a bit long, but it's brilliant. Look, Look at this. He says, there is in fact no body of moral knowledge now operative in the institutions of knowledge in our culture. This is the outcome of the centuries-long effort to develop a moral guide to life within the framework of human thought and experience alone, unassisted by revelation. By contrast, the Christian teaching about moral goodness that derives from the principles laid down by Jesus does have a historical, theoretical, and practical claim to constitute the true body of moral knowledge. 
This is not said to encourage blind acceptance, but precisely the opposite. It's said to encourage the toughest of testing for these teachings of Jesus in all areas of thought and real life. And it is with regard to this issue of what kind of people we're to be that the teachings of Jesus about the rightness of the kingdom heart show him to be the unrivaled master of human life. He closes with this. Any serious inquirer can validate these teachings in his or her own experience, but they cannot invalidate them simply by refusing to consider them and hiding behind the dogmas of modern intellect, close quote. And that takes us to the, to the last question, the big question that we're posing in our, uh, in our uh, Matthew McConaughey interstellar accent, what should we then do, right? Go, UT. I'm so glad you asked. It's really simple, if, if profound, it's really very, very simple. Two words give you the right response. What should we do? Listen, act. Listen and act. Listen. Listen to Jesus in his words. This week, I want to give you an assignment. Okay, here's your assignment. This week, read the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7. It's only three chapters. It will take you 15 minutes tops. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to Jesus. Act. As we go through this series, there are going to be dozens of applications. You and I are going to run into all kinds of things that the Lord is calling us to do. So let's start right now. Let's decide today that we will act. We are not going to be sugar candy people any longer. We're going to trust Jesus. We're going to step out in adventure, and we're going to obey him no matter what. Read with me Jesus' famous words about listening and acting. Matthew chapter 7, you get the underlined text. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse. Why not, everybody? Because its foundation was on the rock. And that, my friends, is our objective. Here's your mission, should you choose to accept it. Our objective for this series is that we build on Jesus' ethic by God's grace. We build on Jesus' ethic by God's grace. How do we build? We build by listening and acting. So let's take a moment and do that right now. Let's pray. Pray with me, please. Join me in prayer. God, we come to you and we ask you to encourage us and deepen us and challenge us and change us that we might act on what we learn. And most of all, I pray we will listen. Listen, friends, listen to Jesus. The poor in spirit are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Those who mourn are blessed, for they will be comforted. The gentle are blessed, for they will inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, for they will be filled. The merciful are blessed, for they will be shown mercy. The pure in heart are blessed, for they will see God. The peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called sons of God. Those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Lord, guide us to act on what we heard. In Jesus' name, amen.